Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 25, Numbers chapter 21, continued. Well, last week we had just started Numbers chapter 21, and in this chapter we see a continuation full of difficulties of the Israelites' journey towards the promised land of Canaan. Now, we just saw that the king of Edom, king of Edom, had refused to allow them to pass through his territory, uh, the most preferred route for them to have come from down here, cross below the Dead Sea, and then come up this, here's the Dead Sea here, rather, cross here, and then come on up, and then across the Jordan. Um, but he refused and says, no, it can't pass through my territory. Then the king of Arad, right, who was over in this area, attacked Israel. And although the Israelites eventually defeated him and took some of his cities captive and looted them, gave the bounty to, to the Lord as a payment of a vow, um, they still didn't want to go through his territory. And while looking at a map... Considering they were right over here, right, it would have made a lot of sense just to go zip right on up here and presto, you're in Canaan. Um, it would have caused an eventual encounter with the dreaded Philistines who were located right in this area. They couldn't have avoided them. That's something that the Lord said he wanted them to avoid at all costs. Well, let's pick up our Bibles and take off from here at uh, Numbers 21, verse 4, and I'll read it to the end. Numbers 21, verse 4, this is on page 173 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Then they traveled from Mount Hor on the road towards the Sea of Suf in order to go around the land of Edom. But the people's tempers grew short because of this detour. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt just to die here in the desert? There's no real food. There's no water. We're sick of this miserable stuff we're eating. In response, Adonai sent poisonous snakes among the people. They bit the people and many of Israel's people died. The people came to Moses and said, Oh, we sinned by speaking against Adonai and against you. Pray to Adonai that he rid us of these snakes. And Moses prayed for the people, and Adonai answered Moses, Make a poisonous snake and put it up on a pole. And when anyone who's been bitten sees it, he'll live. Well, Moses made a bronze snake, and he put it on a pole. And if a snake had bitten someone, then when he looked towards that bronze snake, he stayed alive. Then the people traveled on and camped at Ovot. And at Ovot they traveled and camped at Hayyehai Avarim, all right, in the desert fronting Moab on the east. And from there they traveled and camped at the Wadi Sered. And from there they traveled and camped on the other side of the Arnon in the desert. Now this river comes out of the territory of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the boundary between the uh, Moabites and the Amorites. And this is why it says in the book of the wars of Adonai, Vahev at Sufa, the wadis of Arnon, and the slope of the wadis extending as far as the site of Ar, which lies next to the territory of Moab. Now from there they went on to Be'er, which means well, 
And that is the well about which Adonai said to Moses, Assemble the people and I'll give them water. Then then, uh, Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to the well, sunk by the princes, dug by the people's leaders with the scepter, with their staffs. Now from the desert they went to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nachliel, from Nachliel to Bamot, and from Bamot to the valley by the plain of Moab at the start of the Pisgah range, where it overlooks the desert. Now Israel sent messengers to Sichon, king of the Amorites, with this message. Let me pass through your land. We won't turn aside into the fields of the vineyards. We won't drink any water from the wells. We will go along the king's highway until we've left your territory. But Sechon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. Instead, Sechon mustered all of his people and went out in the desert to fight Israel. And on reaching Ahatz, he fought Israel. Well, Israel defeated him by force of arms, took control of his land from the Arnon to the Yabok River, but only as far as the people of Ammon, because territory of the people of Ammon was well defended. Now Israel took all of these cities. Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites in Heshbon, all of its surrounding towns. Now Heshbon was the city of Sichon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had conquered all of his land up to the Arnon. This is why the storytellers say, come to Heshbon, let it be rebuilt, let Sichon's city be restored. For fire burst out of Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sichon. It consumed Ar of the Moab, the lords of our known's high places. Woe to you, Moab, you're destroyed, people of Chemosh. He let his sons be fugitives and his daughters captives of Sichon, king of the Amorites. We shot them down. Heshbon is destroyed, all the way to Devon. We even laid waste to Nofah, which extends as far as Metvah. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. Now Moses sent men to reconnoiter Yatser. They captured its towns and drove out the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up along the road to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, marched out against them, he with all of his people, to fight at Edre. And Adonai said to Moses, Don't be afraid of him. I've handed him over to you, along with all of his people in his land. You will treat him just as you did Sechon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they struck him down with all of his sons and all of his people until there was nobody left. And they took control of his land. Let me mention something here, quite interesting. Um... We're going to be studying tomorrow um, in, in Sunday morning tour class uh, in the book of uh, Judges a section that refers specifically to this incident. All right. Um, so it's kind of a, those of you that come to both, this is going to be a good lesson. This is going to be a great context for dealing with tomorrow. Now, the only reasonable route that was open to Moses since he had been denied access all over the place, was called the Way of the Sea of the Reeds, or Yam Suf. And in modern terms, this was a well-traveled highway that skirted the western edge of uh, Edom and ended up at the northern tip of the... You can just barely see it down here, of the, of the uh, Gulf of Aqaba, one, one of the fingers of the Red Sea, right down here. So this highway kind of went along down this way. 
Now, the route, unfortunately, was one, of mo- was one of the most difficult of the entire wilderness journey. It was hot, it was rugged, and it was merciless. And, and those leaders who had been in their prime of their lives, when they had left Egypt, were now elderly. And they were getting weary after 40 years living like Bedouins. Now, those who were elderly when they first left Egypt were now dead and buried. And the the Israelites were now openly questioning Moses' choice to even go around Edom, a a journey that would add at least a month through some of the, the worst terrain imaginable. Now, the common Israelites were neither stupid nor uninformed. I mean, for them, there seemed to be no good pragmatic reason to take this arduous route around Adam, having to do this, because they well knew that the the nomadic militia of Edom could never have stopped this enormous 600,000 man army of Israel from passing through. I mean, the the show of force that Edom had made earlier was just that. A show of force that was just a bluff. They they didn't attack Israel, nor did they inflict any kind of damage upon them that was recorded. But, but, But the threat from Edom had achieved its desired effect. Even more, Moses recognized this natural kinship that they had to the Edomites, and they didn't want to inflict grave damage on so close of a, of a relative. So in a few days after turning south, the people came, became depressed, disillusioned, angry, and they spoke out against Jehovah and Moses. And if they had learned anything by now, it was that it was folly to speak against Moses and then to imagine that in doing so it in no way involved God. When they rebelled against God's earthly mediator, they rebelled against God. So, they openly griped, not just about Moses, but also about the God who had redeemed them from their Egyptian oppression. Well, the gripe, of course, is the usual argument. Things were better back in Egypt. I mean, why would you disrupt us, bring us to this horrible place, and then just allow us to die? But this time, they took one more bold step in their rebellion. They said they had come to hate the food, the manna that the Lord had provided for them for the past 40 years. They said they were sick to death of the bread from heaven. And in response to this utter lack of gratitude and trust, by the way, the Lord sent poisonous serpents to bite them and it killed many Israelites. Now here we see that despite the rebellion, a certain maturity and understanding of the people of Israel had actually occurred. They at least instantly recognized that the serpents were a divine plague upon them and their only hope of survival was to plead with Moses, their mediator, to intercede with Jehovah on their behalf. At least that's something. Finally, they understood that Moses' position was, uh, was, was not approachable. Nobody was equal to Moses on earth. 
There weren't multiple mediators. There was no democratic solution to this thing. Even more, the people had come to realize the other vital principle about redemption and forgiveness of sin. It's the necessity of repentance. Now, I hope you paid close attention as we move through Exodus, then Leviticus, and now most of the way through Numbers, as it has been exposed now that ritual without repentance is ineffectual. Over and over, God says, it's the condition of the heart that matters. Over and over again, it's made clear that the various rituals of atonement and purification, as important as they were, were a matter of obedience, not magic. But ritual itself accomplishes nothing. Ritual by itself, without the confession of wrongdoing, trust in the Most Holy One, and a contrite spirit are indeed nothing but worthless acts, mechanical acts of self-righteousness. And I want to make it as clear as possible to all who are listening whether it's here, on the radio, or out on the internet. Because it's hurtful to me the way Hebrew history and liturgy and the Torah itself has been so maligned and distorted. There was no general belief among the Hebrews that robot-like obedience to the law brought a proper and good relationship with Yahweh. There was not. This erroneous concept of a works-based righteousness that is invariably attributed to the Jewish people by the church simply was not the norm in Israelite culture. Even more, there was no belief in general that their reward for doing the law was any more than simply pleasing God. Now, of course, I can't deny that such thoughts and practices didn't exist among a minority of Hebrews, But it wasn't the ways of the mainstream teachers or the followers of Yehovah. Let me say this another way. This belief that's almost universal within the church, that the Old Testament was a works-based method of attaining salvation that required no faith, and was later replaced with a faith-based redemption called the New Covenant that declared works were bad or irrelevant, is simply inaccurate. And it's not biblical. First, salvation didn't mean to an ancient Hebrew what it means to today's followers of Yeshua. Salvation for them meant that Israel would become a world power from which the laws of the God of Israel would become the universal standard for all mankind. Salvation was similar to what happened when Israel left Egypt. It was an escape from the oppression of an earthly oppressor in order to establish a kingdom of God on earth in Canaan. There was no thought, there remains no thought, that if they obey the law, they'll go live with God in heaven. The Hebrews obey God because they love him. They obey his laws because the best thing in life for them is to please the Lord. 
Any kind of eternal reward for being faithful to Jehovah is purely secondary. Now, we can all look at the Hebrews, historically, and criticize them to one degree or another for slowly, steadily, focusing on creating and following man-made traditions, what today the church calls faith doctrines, by the way, instead of the principles and the laws as written down in the Holy Scriptures. As a matter of fact, Jesus berated his own people for doing this. And as believers, we can know for a certainty that despite their love of God, too many Jews have rejected his mediator and his son, Yeshua, and this condemns them in a way that grieves my heart. However, because Christians have accepted and fostered this distorted view of the way that Jews see Torah and tradition and Judaism, we not only falsely accuse an entire people of religious folly and legalism, but let me tell you, we also falsely accuse the Old Testament itself and therefore accuse God, the author of the Old Testament, of establishing legalism in the first place even if only a time, is, is the dispensationalist teaching. I unequivocally tell you today that this is a falsehood that has eroded the heart of the church for centuries. It's marginalized the very people who wrote down and protected the Holy Word of God and who produced our Savior. And has created the kind of, it's, this has created the kind of enmity between the church and the Jewish people where there ought to be brotherhood just as there was an enmity between Israel and Edom, Jacob and Esau. Well, let's get back to our story. Moses saw the people's admission of their sin against God, and also that he saw their contrite hearts. And so, as their mediator, he asked God to heal them. Thus we come upon one of the most difficult and controversial stories in the Bible. The tale of the brazen serpent hung up on the pole. And we read that when the Israelites looked upon this brazen serpent, their snake bites were healed and they lived. Now what makes this all the more difficult is that Jesus himself makes mention of this incident and even draws a comparison between that and his coming crucifixion. Listen to the words ascribed to Yeshua in John 3.14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so even must the Son of Man be lifted up. So what are we to make then from this wilderness event? How does this bronze serpent affair compare to the death of Christ? Well, let's first of all see what Numbers says happened and why it happened. Jehovah told Moses to make a fiery serpent and to mount it to a pole and put it up high and when anyone who had been bitten by these divinely, this divinely ordered plague of poisonous snakes looked upon it, they'd be healed and they would be saved from, from death. Now we're told that Moses complied and he made that serpent out of either copper or bronze and indeed 
looking upon that serpent, healed those who had been bitten. And that's about all that's said about it. That's it. This ought to immediately be a warning to us not to read more into it than what's here. Or to too heavily speculate about it, as has been done on a rather grand scale, specifically by Gentile Christians. Let's begin by examining this phrase about the pole and the serpent in the original language. The Hebrew says that Moses was to make a saraf, a saraf. And right there is where the difficulty begins. Because if we turn to Isaiah 6-2, don't go there, I'm going to read it to you. We see this remarkable verse, Isaiah 6-2, Seraphim stood above him each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And wouldn't you just know it, this heavenly seraphim of this passage is precisely the same word, and Hebrew spelling, seraph, as what it was that Moses hung up on that pole, which is usually translated as a fiery serpent. But here's the thing. The Hebrew word for serpent or snake is not seraph. It's nachash. N-A-C-H-A-S-H. Nachash. And in neither Numbers 21.8, here, the story we just read about the serpent, nor in Isaiah 6.2, is the word nachash used. Only seraph. Now, is it possible that what was hung on that pole out in the wilderness wasn't a snake, but something else? Since the term seraph isn't precisely defined. Well, probably not. Because in 2 Kings 18.4, we find another mention of this incident. At a time, maybe five, six centuries after this wilderness incident occurred, and here's what it says about it in 2 Kings 18.4. It says, He, Hezekiah, removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. Nehushtan. They'd given it a name. Well, the Hebrew word used in this verse, in 2 Kings, for the bronze serpent was Nehosheth Nachash. Nehosheth Nachash. Nehosheth means bronze. And here we find our usual Hebrew word next to it for serpent or snake, Nachash. So here in 2 Kings is a 500, 600 year later account, an independent account, that says that the object was there in their day. That was placed on that pole in the shape of a snake was some serpent looking thing. Hmm. See, but this entire incident is very bothersome for all kinds of reasons. Not the least of which, of course, is the serpent is the primary biblical figure 
for representing Satan. From the first chapters of Genesis all the way through Revelation. So is what we have here a God-ordained symbolization, representation, whatever, of Satan hung on a pole that somehow heals snake bites and is then in the New Testament compared to Messiah's experience on the cross and is described by none less than Jesus himself. Yet when five centuries after this incident we read about in Numbers happens, Hezekiah destroys that pole and serpent. And he's even praised for doing it. I mean, this is really weird. I mean, let's peel this onion back another layer. Okay? By understanding what the problem was that caused Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, to take down and destroy that long-cherished bronze serpent. This was the actual one, by the way. This was the one. As made by Moses' men, used by Moses, and used during the Exodus. This was it. Okay? I mean, this thing had become a virtual icon among Israel of the Israelites' wilderness experience. So did... King Hezekiah do a bad thing or a good thing by taking it down and destroying it? I mean, did it please God that he did this? Or was it no difference than spitting on the cross of Christ? Well, here's what the Bible says about why King Hezekiah did what he did. It says in 2 Kings 18.1, Now it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, a call according to everything that his father David had done. And further, as we read in verse 18, for until those days the son of Israel had burned incense to it. And they even called it Nehushtan. See, the pole in the serpent by King Hezekiah's day, probably for hundreds of years before that, had become an image that the Israelites worshipped. They had burned incense to it. It had become such an important object of worship that they'd even given it a name. Nehushtan. But how was what the Israelites were doing in the Hezekiah's day substantially any different than what had happened out in the wilderness with Moses at God's direction? Even more, since Christ equated in some way His crucifixion with the brazen serpent being lifted up on a pole, don't we adore that very pole? Look to it. The cross Christ was lifted up on. Okay. What's so different about the pole that God ordained to be erected with that seraph on it in Moses' day as opposed to the same pole used as an object of worship in Hezekiah's day, as opposed to the pole used to execute Jesus, that some people look at today as virtually an object of worship. 
Tough questions. Okay. The ancient rabbis have some very interesting takes on both the brazen serpent and separately the seraphim that stand guarding God's throne up in heaven. And please keep in mind that the same exact Hebrew word, seraph, is used for the serpent on the pole here in Numbers and for the heavenly creatures. The translators called seraphim. Now what follows is more or less a summary of the thoughts of several of these rabbis and sages with a couple of my own peppered in. First, let's revisit Isaiah 6.2. Don't open your Bibles. I'm just going to read this for you. Starting at, uh, actually, it's going to start at 6.1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. Two, he covered his feet. Two, he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out when the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew over to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So what can we say about Seraphim. Okay. They're heavenly spirit beings. They have several wings. They stand above the Lord who sits on his throne. And they're so holy and pure that they're allowed to take the very coals from the heavenly altar. Wow. Part of the meaning of the term seraph is burning or fiery. And it comes from this association here in Isaiah 6 okay, with these fiery coals that come from the heavenly altar. So seraphim are seen by definition as fiery creatures. Now remember, these are spirit beings, so all association with anything physical is purely figurative. Now from this we see they can fly through the air, wings, as well as back and forth between heaven and earth. And they're allowed the closest access to God. They even were permitted to carry the purifying coals from the heavenly altar fire that takes away... Imagine this. They could carry the coals that takes away iniquity, iniquity and provides forgiveness. Seraphim are amazingly holy, powerful, and were given tremendous authority. And they are also associated with fire. Further, if we compare biblical descriptions of cherubim and seraphim, we find that they're almost identical. Okay. Some sages have suggested they're really but two names for the same being. In fact, it is likely that while cherubim, cherubim 
is the proper name for a particular kind of heavenly being, seraph, seraphim, is probably actually meant to be more of a descriptive term rather than a name. Right? And, and may well only be describing a characteristic of the cherubim. Fiery. See what I'm saying? Others opine that they're two beings of fairly equal high order. They're essentially the same type of being, but maybe they've been given a little bit different tasks. Well, be that as it may. Kerubim and seraphim are a special and higher order of heavenly being than what is typically called angels. Okay, they're the guardians of God's throne and of his personal holiness. Now, here's where we have to broaden our subject matter just a little bit to include Satan. We're told that Satan began as a very high order heavenly being. That he was among the most beautiful and the most powerful of heavenly beings. Let me quote this from the book of Apocalypse 12. There was a great battle in heaven. Michal and all of his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon fought with his angels, and they prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, who seduces, seduces the whole world, and he was cast unto the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. Now we find this statement in one of the books of the Apocrypha. But this same statement is found almost word for word in the book of Revelation, which we'll see shortly. Then we find this startling bit in Isaiah 14.12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself just like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Now here we have a statement that tells us that Satan was up in heaven. He was gorgeous. But he was sent down to earth because of his desire to usurp God. But he didn't go without a fight. Now, here's one more verse, and we're getting close to putting some pieces together. This is a pretty familiar verse to most of us, as it is about God dealing with Satan, the serpent, as a result of his deceiving Eve, the partaking of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is from Genesis 3.14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. Cursed are you more than every beast of the field. Because on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, notice that the serpent, Satan, was cursed in that from that day forward he'd crawl on his belly. Obviously, he was upright right before this time of the curse of crawling on his belly. Otherwise, it would have had no meaning. And we must never think that Satan was simply like the first snake on planet Earth. Okay? The Bible makes it clear that this serpent as it's called, was unlike any beast of the field or any other living thing. He was very unique. In fact, he could speak. Okay, now let me throw you one more small bit of information. Another very familiar passage to you. Revelation 12, 7. And there was war in heaven. 
And Michael and his, his angels were waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Here's the thing. In addition to being symbolized as a serpent, Satan, in Revelation, is now symbolized as a dragon. And obviously this is Satan, and he was higher than angels, because it speaks of his angels... And his fight with Michal that we read about, read about a few minutes ago. So what's a dragon? Well, first of all, the dragon is a mythical creature that goes back to the, goes back to ancient China. It actually does not appear to be any part of Middle Eastern culture or lore. There were for sure other god creatures of the Middle East in ancient times, that were generally part man, part beast, had wings, but they weren't dragons. Dragons were all beast. They had no human element to them. Now, since dragons also became part of Greek folklore, the Greeks invented their own word for this creature of fantasy. Thus, we have the Greek word dracon, D-R-A-K-O-N, dracon, in the New Testament, of course, and how do we pronounce it? Dragon. That's where we get it. Now, what is it that John had in mind when he chose the word translated to be dragon in Revelation? What was he picturing? What is this mythical fire-breathing creature that any Hebrew would have taken as pure fantasy? They didn't believe in such things. There's utterly no record, by the way, that Jews had any idea what a dragon was let alone had they ever included an image of dragons in any of their literature. So it's highly unlikely that a dragon, as we think of it, is what John had in mind. I suspect John saw something that was much more within the context of his own Hebrew culture, of which the Chinese-style dragon sure wasn't part. The Jewish John would have envisioned something more along the lines of a biblical creature. Not something Greek. Something evil, fiery, a spiritual being that had wings and could fly. Does that sound familiar? I see a rather interesting connection between the winged seraphim that stood erect in heaven, the earthly serpent in the Garden of Eden that had been cast out of heaven, who used to be erect but now is required to crawl on its belly, the seraph that was put on the pole and held up high into the air, and the dragon who is Satan that is fiery, flies with wings, has the look of a serpent, and is identified in Revelation as Satan. Could it be that the heavenly being that was cast out of heaven was a seraph? A seraphim. And it was a rebellious seraph who became known on earth as Satan. It's quite interesting that Jesus said this about Satan in Luke 10. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. In the Bible, see, to the Hebrew mind, lightning was just another representation of fire. It was called heavenly fire. It is at times called, in the Bible, as a matter of fact, fire from heaven. 
In other words, Jesus was essentially saying, I saw Satan fall from heaven like a fiery streak through the sky. And we know that a seraphim was a fiery heavenly being. As Numbers 21 states, it was a seraph that was put up on the pole of Moses and held up high. And that the so-called dragon of Revelation, which is identified as Satan, has all the characteristics of a fiery serpent and has wings and flying ability. Now, there are a couple places in the Bible that say that the heavenly being that was kicked out of heaven was a cherubim. But as I said earlier, when you compare the descriptions of a cherubim and a seraphim, they're virtually identical. Okay, With just the possibility of their duties maybe being different. And very likely, seraph, meaning fiery, is just a characteristic of cherubim. That's all it is. Okay, Now, let me throw you another curveball if you haven't had enough. In the ancient era, it was common that amulets of poisonous insects or poisonous animals were used to counteract the bite or sting of a poisonous creature. So, if, if, if a scorpion bit you, a sorcerer might perform a ritual over you using a scorpion symbol. Okay? It's interesting that while we find this a very laughable superstition, okay, in the modern era, the medical establishments use the venom of poisonous creatures to inject into a person who's been bitten by that creature to counteract the poison. Okay? It's really the same principle. It's just that one's spiritual and the other's physical. Back in Egypt, in addition to indicating royal authority, a serpent was seen as a symbol of both fertility and healing. That's how Israel, you see, would have thought of a fiery serpent. And in fact, it was for the purpose of healing of snake bites that God ordained the serpent to be fashioned and put on a pole, wasn't it? So for the Israelites to see that serpent symbol symbol, as healing them from snake bites would have seemed about par for the course. Something they wouldn't have found strange at all. Would have seemed actually very normal. So what are we to take from all this? Well, first... The seraph symbol put on the pole did not, of itself, heal. It had no power. People didn't even touch it. There was no ritual performed that we're aware of. It was not a magic object. But you know what? It was a familiar object. Even the outward principle of how it was used as a healing device was familiar to them. However, it was simply their looking upon it in repentance and in trust that healed them. Second, at the least, the seraph on the pole has messianic overtones because Yeshua gave it messianic attachments. And at the least, the messianic meaning is that just as a seraph would be nailed to a pole and put up in the air, so would Jesus, thereby predicting his own crucifixion. Now, how much beyond that comparison of merely being nailed to a pole and put up in the air that this is all meant to communicate is pure speculation. 
This led to way too much allegory. Now, there have been some interesting other theological thoughts about all this, but it's hard to assign almost any of these thoughts other than to just the simple category of speculation. For instance, that when the serpent was put up on the pole, the purpose was not really to look at the serpent, but to look through that serpent up to heaven. And that it was essentially the same with Christ, that his body, that human part of him, that was up on that tree, was not the critical object. Rather, it was looking in faith through his body towards the heavenly throne of God. Maybe. Another standard teaching is that just as men dying in sin are saved by means of a man, Yeshua dying on a cross... So are men dying of snake bites healed by a snake held upon a pole? Perhaps. Yet another is that because the serpent on the pole was made of bronze, probably actually copper, it was red in color. And since red symbolizes blood in the Holy Scriptures, therefore it was prophetic of Jesus shedding his blood on the cross years later. I guess that's possible. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I mean, I can't tell you the list of things I found that people have attached to this. The only solid connections that we see from the Bible, from the Bible, about this strange incident are that sin was going to be dealt with by some kind of God-ordained object being nailed onto a pole and lifted up in the air. In Moses' era, it was the seraph, and the sin that was being dealt with was the people's rebellion. In Jesus' era, the object was his own body, and the sin being dealt with was all sin. Another solid connection is that people would look upon that object on a pole, and then they would experience some kind of healing. Again, in the Moses' era, it was looking upon that fiery serpent. In Jesus' era, it was looking upon him. It still is. In both cases, it required repentance and a deep trust of God. Beyond that, I'm not sure what we can attach to it. Actually, I find the more informative and concrete aspects to the story of the brazen serpent to be the biblically-based connection between seraphim, heavenly seraph, the serpent of the Garden of Eden, the seraph on the pole, and the dragon of Revelation that was cast out of heaven. If you want to draw some connections, there's some pretty solid ones for you. Now let me end this segment on the fiery serpent. But in the Bible, is only about two sentences long. <laughs> With this thought. Perhaps the most pointed lesson that we can take from this story concerns the all-too-often gradual, frog-in-a-kettle kind of progression from, a, from taking a God-ordained symbol to an idol that we worship. Nothing could be clearer than that the fiery serpent on that pole was divinely ordained by God. It was pure It was good, and the only thing that Moses and the people could do was to obey, build it, and receive healing. 
not due to that metal object, but due to their obedience to God and their trust in Him. Yet there is nothing, follow me, there is nothing to indicate that this was more than a one-time single solution to a unique and specific problem. A plague of snake bites due to a rebellion. The serpent on the pole was not to become a general symbol or a talisman to be used for general healing by the people. We've seen God do this thing at other times. Moses, remember, at one time was told to hit a rock to give up water. Another time he was told to speak to a rock in order to produce water for the people. You know what? That didn't mean Moses was to assume that every time Israel needed water... He was supposed to, at his own volition, look around for a promising boulder and either speak to it or whack it with Aaron's staff. Did it. Nor was Israel supposed to be on the lookout for a rock formation that said, wow, that looks just like that other one. Then they'd gather around it and they'd beg the rock for water. They'd burn incense to it. Or they'd begin a rock-worshipping cult. Oh, great boulder. We saw that apparently that brazen or fiery serpent on the pole was actually kept by the Israelites as an active icon for at least five centuries after the Exodus. There's no indication that God intended Israel should do that. And no indication that there were other incidents of healing involving that pole and serpent. But people being people, Israel had hoped it had found a magic charm for healing whenever they wanted it. People got ill. They got injured all the time. And just like today, you know what? People do pretty much anything to have their suffering relieved. Their bodies healed, life extended. And so the Hebrews kept that pole with the bronze image of a serpent and eventually they began to honor and venerate the pole and the serpent in hopes that paying homage to it would bring about healing. The fault in all of this was that they adored, they adored the object instead of the one who can actually heal. Yehovah, who has no form at all. King Hezekiah finally realized this, and he destroyed what had begun as an authorized, one-use-only divine instrument of God, but through misuse, it had become a worthless and ungodly object of false worship, sorcery, and idolatry. We'll talk about this some more next week.